Well, let's grab our Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel 18. I was informed last week I said 1 Samuel, so let me repeat. 2 Samuel, for those of you from Europe or Canada or Canada, for those of you from the West, that is 2 Samuel, right? Uh, or if you're from New York, right, it's 2 Samuel, okay? Um, particularly politician from, from New York. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 18, page 291 of your Pew Bibles. Uh, we're wanting to look at verses 19 of chapter 18 all the way into chapter 19, verse 8. So I think what we'll do, instead of reading all of it, because it is quite lengthy, um, and it's, it's easy to get lost sort of whenever you read this, you sort of get lost. So I want to read just one paragraph. Uh, so if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. But we'll go through the, the entire narrative. And we're finishing the, the civil war in Israel this morning. Let's go down to verse 31. And go to the end of chapter 18 there. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my Lord the King. For Yahweh, it's important there, for the Lord, has delivered you this day from the hand of all who's, who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, it is, well with the, is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord the King and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always when we gather for worship the same thing, half for years that you would open our entire being, that we would receive your word, be transformed by it, and that all that we meet would know the love of Jesus. This is, this is your work, and we ask that you would be kind to do it. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Got a pop quiz for you. And I know you're thinking, well, I wasn't ready for a quiz, which is why we called it a pop quiz. Here it is. Which president of the United States had the shortest tenure? Which president of the United States served as president for the shortest amount of time? Now, now, if you teach history, not allowed to know. Um, maybe I feel like Mark probably shouldn't shout it out here because he's, he's, he's going to pull out his rectangular of, of all notches right there in the old head. That's amazing what they're learning down there in Ashland. But... Uh, uh, you may think it is Kennedy who didn't finish his first term, or maybe Andrew Johnson who, who finished Lincoln's second term, or maybe it's a Gerald Ford who had to finish uh, Nixon's after he, he resigned. No, you would be wrong in those. The president with the shortest term as president is William Henry Harrison, our ninth president of these United States. At his inaugural address... He delivered, which remains the longest address, nearly two hours. And they did it without going to commercial break, which is really amazing. Most historians believe, and it's debatable, but believe that on that March morning when he gave that speech, uh, it was a particularly cold day, and he refused to wear an overcoat. Now, he refused to wear it likely because he was considered to be too old for the position. And I'll just leave it there. Uh, you can Google how old he was, whether or not you agree with it, particularly by modern standards. And so to prove that he was man enough for the job, he didn't wear an overcoat. Well, shortly after giving the speech, he came down with a cold. That cold turned into pneumonia. 
and 31 days into his presidency, he died. William Henry Harrison was the first president to die in office. His vice president, John Tyler, became the first vice president to become president. So new was this that no one really knew what John Tyler, the former vice president, now president, what his authority was. Was he the president of the United States? Was he the acting president of the United States? What was he? He insisted he was president. Naturally, he would do that. His, the other party wanted him just to be an acting president. 31 days served in the White House and spent most of that time sick and dying. He came to mind when I was considering the, the rule and reign of young Absalom, who had one of the shortest reigns in all of Israel. In fact, among united Israel, he certainly had the shortest reign. Shortly after taking the throne, due to foolish decisions and, of course, the sovereign providential grace of God, he, his rule and reign in Israel, comes to an end. Let's look quickly in verses 19 to 30 of chapter 18, the announcement of Absalom's death. Now, the war is over. The enemy's army is fleeing, at least, at least uh, Absalom's army is fleeing, and the usurper king, Absalom, is deceased. He was slain in battle. And so now what needs to be done is that David, the one who was kicked out of the palace, he needs to be informed about what has happened. Now, we skipped over a little bit last week for the sake of time and detail, but David wanted to go out and lead the army against Absalom. But his generals, three of them, remember his, his army was divided into three parts, his generals wouldn't let it happen because they understood that David was emotionally compromised. David cared more about protecting Absalom, his enemy, politically speaking, militarily speaking, than he was about gaining victory for his supporters. So they made him uh, stay in hiding, not to mention Absalom wanted him dead, right? So, so stay in hiding, you'll be safe, protected, and we can lead the army better in this case because we're not emotionally invested. Well, Absalom dies, and now you need to go tell the king what has happened. And so there are two messengers one is commissioned by the general Joab, who actually threw javelins into Absalom's body. And, and the other is the son of the high priest Zadok. Uh, the, the first, the son of the high priest, uh, is, is given to, to us there in verse 19. Ahimaaz, right? You got to pronounce both A's there. Ahimaaz, right? There you go. Uh, that'll be on your quiz along with William Henry Harrison. But he is the son of the high priest. He is eager to tell the king and most assume because he thinks that if he has good news to announce to the king, the king will uh, give him some, some cheddar, right? He'll be really generous to him. But Joab doesn't want that. So both of them take off, okay? Ahimaaz goes, it shows up first and... He delivers the, the message, right? Uh, that starts in verse 24 when, when he arrives. But verse 28, he gives the message, all is well to the king, right? So in other words, we won. Now, Joab tells a, a hip, a, you don't know what his name is. Um, uh, we'll call him uh, Maz here. He tells him that, look, David wants to know the answer to one question. What happened to my boy? And so David asked the question, 
Is it well with my son Absalom? And Ahimaaz, he, he, he sort of waffles right here. Verse 29, uh, 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 when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was, right? That's a nice way of saying like, I ain't telling you what really happened, right? <laughs> uh-uh, I don't want, because he knows what happened to the last guy who killed the king's son, Saul's son. So David says, well, what good are you to me? Stay here and wait, because the Cushite comes. The Cushite is a Gentile. Obviously, he's a Cushite from Cush, which is, which is around Egypt. And he is sent by Joab, and he is a better messenger. Okay? And what we read in verses 31 to, to the end of the chapter is his delivery of the message. You'll notice how he, he answers David's questions. He gives him all the information he needs, but he isn't callous. And he isn't direct. He's very diplomatic here. So he, he says, they're good news, is verse 31, for my Lord, the king, for Yahweh. Remember, this is a Gentile speaking here. He rightly understands it was the work of the divine one, the king of Israel, the true king of Israel, the God of Israel, who has given the victory. Uh, he has, the God, Yahweh, has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. In other words, you won. Right? Uh, the, the, the enemy has been defeated. You're getting your kingdom back. And so what does David do? He responds with, to the Cushite the way he responded with Ahimaaz. And there it is. You can see it in verse 32. Is it well with the young man Absalom? Notice the Cushite's answer. May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. In other words, he's dead. He didn't say that. But David gets the message. So here you have two individuals traveling to announce, not only have you won the victory, but your son was killed in the battle. And that moves from the announcement to the agony here in verse 33. I think it was worth reading again. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. That word wept is an interesting word. It is a strong word, meaning a deep cry. You can, you can translate it to wail. The first time, I believe, is the first time it's used in the Bible is when um, um, Ishmael and Hagar are kicked out by Abraham and Sarah. And Hagar has to put her baby boy, her young son, under the shade because they are starving to death in a drought. They are going to die of exposure. She, she goes off in the distance where she can no longer hear her son as he makes his final cries, and she goes out into the distance and wails. She weeps. It's the same word used here of David. Hagar anticipating the death of her son Ishmael. Of course, he survives. And here is David weeping and wailing and lamenting the death of his son. Notice that since chapter 12... This is now the third son of David he has lost. Three, Amnon, the unnamed child with Bathsheba, and now Absalom. And let us not forget, it's easy for us that when we read this passage, we see it as good versus evil. The good guy is David. Absalom is the bad guy. Absalom got what he, he, his, his just deserts. So yeah, we celebrate. But for David... He doesn't see it in those sort of terms. He sees it as, my son has died. In fact, that's the language there, isn't it? There in verse 33, 
Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Notice the words, my son, are repeated five times in this lament. And remember in Hebrew, there is no way to emphasize something apart from repetition. Five times he says, my son, my son, my son, my son. This is not a military general or a king celebrating victory in battle, but rather it is as a father lamenting his son. At the end of the day, David sees himself as father. What I have died, isn't that the prayer of any loving parent? If one of us must go, let it be me instead of you. And one can imagine perhaps what might be going through David's mind. Would things have been different had David addressed Amnon's rape of Tamar? Would things have been different, perhaps he's wondering here, if David hadn't exiled uh, Absalom following Amnon's murder? Would things have been different if David hadn't cut Absalom off from his presence? You can see David here calculating, replaying years he spent ignoring his son, keeping him at a distance, or refusing to reconcile with his own child. Oh, my son, he says. Had I only been wiser, had I I only been humbler, had I been more righteous and just. Grief has a way of drawing within us strong emotions of regrets. What if I hadn't gotten in that car? What if I had eaten better? What if I had swallowed my pride? I wish I told them I loved them. Did I tell them that I loved them? Know that you've been in that situation where either you are professing these these emotions of regret or listening to the emotions of regret of a dear loved one who is responding with sorrow and grief with regret. Had only I expressed my love and affection more. Had only I, we had not agreed to this. Had only I had listened more. Had only I had reconciled. Had only I had done this or that. You can imagine David going through those sort of emotions. So on the one hand, we can sympathize with him. His lamentation and his isolation make sense. Here we have a father mourning the loss of his son. But again, Absalom is not merely David's son. And David is not merely his father in this narrative. David is the king and victorious in battle. Absalom is David's military and political enemy. The future of Israel and the future of all who have followed David, as well as their families, are at stake here. So although on the one hand we can sympathize with David and his, his grief, at the other hand, the situation is more complicated than the loss of a son. Let us look finally at the acrimony, chapter 19, verses 1 to 8. It doesn't take long for the news not only of Absalom's death and the victory over the, the, the usurper and his army, but the news of David's response to that announcement spreads quickly. In verses 1 to 4, chapter 19, David's sorrow was so severe that the day of rejoicing 
is turned into mourning. Start there in chapter 19, verse 1. It was told Jacob, or Joab rather, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. You see, so, so, so what was supposed to be a celebration, a parade. We're going to march back to Jerusalem. They're going to celebrate us as being victorious. Our, our, our Lord is now king again, and the threat to his throne is no more. Let anyone who rises up against David know what will come of you, right? This is supposed to be good news in Israel. But because of the king's response, celebration turns to sorrow. What a reminder it is that how one grieves, as well as how one expresses joy, will affect other people. This is a hard lesson for us to learn because we think, I can grieve alone, it's my grief, and it shouldn't bother other people. Or I can rejoice alone, and and it shouldn't bother other people. But everything we do, good, bad, or ugly, affects the people we love and those around us. David learns this the hard way. What is supposed to be a day of rejoicing turns into a day of sorrow because their leader, their head, is grieving. So Joab does the brave thing. He confronts his king. You know the story of Esther. You just don't walk in and say, look here, this is the way it's going to be. This isn't a democracy that Joab is serving in. It's a monarchy. And Joab understands this is a problem. So like Nathan before him, Joab rebukes the king. You can see it there starting in verse 5. Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. Shame, he says, because <coughs> excuse me, you love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all who were dead today, then you would be pleased. Verse 7, now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from, the, from, from your son. That is how you do rebukes, ladies and gentlemen. He doesn't do politics. He just says, this is the problem with your leadership. Notice two things that Joab, keep calling him Jacob, Joab says to David, first of all, it was necessary that Absalom die. Remember, Joab is the one that led the charge against him. He throws three javelins in him, then has his servants also to, to kill him so that Joab can say, I don't know who killed him, right? He understands you cannot let someone who took your throne with an army your army with him. Justice demands he be executed. We would understand that even today. This sort of treachery cannot go unpunished. Secondly, he notes that due to David's failure here and his response, he was losing supports. 
By carrying on this way, David was losing the respect of his troops and his, and his supporters, for they perceived that, that David wished they were the ones to cease and not the usurper. David looks weak and emotionally compromised because he is. He looks selfish and unworthy to lead. Now, to his credit, in verse 8, David dries his tears and he addresses his men. We'll see more of that starting, Lord willing, next week. I want to, in the time that remains, offer just two simple points of application. One is more of an observation. Then I want us to look at what I think the Lord wants us to see in this passage. The first is an observation, and this is what stuck out to me when I read this story this week. And that is simply, leadership requires strength. Leadership requires strength. In the middle of the Civil War, Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln lost, suffered their greatest loss in the war, and that was the death of their own son, their youngest son. He died of typhoid fever and suffered for quite a while. Mary Todd sat by her son and nursed him nonstop until the day he died. So severe was her grief that she went isolated to a room that the President of the United States had to see to it that the White House staff had to take care of the see to her that she ate and just functioned as a human being because she was inconsolable. In fact, they had another child who after the, their youngest died, had another child also suffering from typhoid fever. She refused to go to him because her grief was too much. She even, in the end, resorted to spiritualism, hosting various, um, 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 with a medium or whatever, uh, uh, seances, thank you, um, uh, seances, that's my uh, stuttering thing where I lose words, uh, having seances in the White House in order to speak to her lost boy. Lincoln, one who suffered lifelong from depression and melancholy, and at times was even suicidal before the war, he responded with grief, yes, but he still had to march to the war room and give updates and commands to win the war. I used a Republican as an illustration. Let me use a Democrat. In the 20th century, a, a, a man in the Navy who was really uh, 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 building a nice career in the military discovered his father had suddenly died. And the farm that he grew up on, that his father ran, was at risk of falling apart and his family suffering poverty as a result. He left that promising career in the Navy to run that peanut farm in Georgia, and his name was Jimmy Carter. One's a Democrat, one's a Republican. What do they both have in common? An understanding. Leadership requires strength. And let me add to that. Men, your leadership in particular requires a special strength. I do believe women can and do lead. But men in particular are called by God to lead in a variety of ways. In the marriage, in the home, with children, in the community, in the church, at the workplace. And I am deeply concerned that we are no longer raising men. We are raising boys who can shave. And I see it by the inability of young men to lead. Biblically speaking, leadership requires requires humility, strength, and courage. 
It requires men to lead. It requires decision-making, self-confidence, and moral fortitude. It also requires emotional strength. Every father here will come to the point in their lives when they will have to comfort their children because they lost Mama and Papa, and Mama and Papa are his parents. It would be easy to say, these are my parents, let the wife comfort the children. But what the children need is for dad to be there, to hold their hand, to dry their tears, and to say, don't worry, son, don't worry, daughter, we will make it through this together. Every husband here will have to lead their wife through the emotional roller coaster of being an empty nester. We will get through this. And to do it with care and gentleness and love. It doesn't mean men cannot be emotional and experience the same loss and the same difficulties. But when there is a need for leadership, there needs to be men in particular willing to do it and to step in. Every man must learn to rein in his anger, control his appetites, commit themselves to marriage, children, and their community. David fails miserably at this in this text. When he discovers Absalom has died, he responds not with strength, but with weakness. At the risk of losing his throne all over again. Now, understanding this is a difficult, difficult situation he finds himself in. No father can celebrate the death of his son, no matter how wicked and evil they might prove themselves. At the same time, God has called him to a position of leadership that he is responsible to fulfill. He has been anointed by God to lead Israel, even when he is personally wounded. That is why leadership requires a special kind of strength. Church, young men need strong, godly men to lead and to love them. The primary influence here should be godly, humble, strong fathers. But increasingly, because we're not raising men, we have no fathers in the home. And we wonder why we have a mess. And why we have emasculated and effeminate boys running around. Can't keep a job. Can't can't fight against anxiety. Thinks everything is about them. Can't keep relationships. And on and on and on it goes. So we need fathers, but we also need our godly men in the church to lead and love our young men. Leadership requires strength. Secondly and finally, and I think this gets more closer to what the text wants us to see. Salvation requires both justice and love. In this passage, really it covers about a chapter worth of narrative, we have two main characters who approach the death of Absalom very differently. Joab comes and he sees the world, at least the situation through the lens of justice, Absalom is guilty of a heinous crime of treachery and and violence, and so justice demands he be addressed. To ignore what Absalom has done, to let him run off into the night, runs risk of Israel suffering from his treachery again, 
and it, it is a mockery of justice itself. Crime requires punishment. So what does Joab do when he finds that Absalom is caught in the tree? He grabs javelins and people with really good, strong aim, and he dresses the problem from the head on. David, on the other hand, responds to the Absalom threat, not with justice, but with love. So much so he's willing to compromise the lives of his own men to keep a traitor, a violent murderer, safe. Now who's right? Who's right? Well, we would all agree. Justice must be done. We would all agree, though true, it's David's boy. And what father could really order the execution of his own child? His prayer, his lamentation is one that we would all make. Because at the end of the day, Absalom is his son. This tension between justice and love is not a new one, nor is it unique. Throughout human history, we have struggled with this balance between justice and love. In fact, most of our cultural conversations are over that. Justice on the one hand, love on the other. Wrath on one hand, mercy on the other. And it is here we as Christians, we find an answer. It is here where we turn to the son of David. Not Absalom, but Christ. Scripture is clear. We are like Absalom. I've warned you before in the story of David, don't see yourself as the hero, David, Joab, whoever it might be. You and I in the story of David are usually the villain. Here we are like Absalom. We have sought over and over again to usurp the throne of God. And so we have created a world of brokenness and sin and shame, living for our own desires and our own kingdom building. We are traitors. We are rebels. We continue to revolt against our maker, And what is the response from God? It is first that of justice. Wrath is stored up for us, for we deserve it as we would for anyone. And no amount of good works will cover the sin and the stain upon our souls, because that is not how justice works. However, God in Christ sent to us his son to suffer the full, just wrath of God, so that through him, the love of God is demonstrated clearly to us all. At the cross of Jesus, the justice and the love of God meet perfectly. There we see God's wrath poured out upon sin and God's love and grace poured out upon sinners. Can I prove it to you from this text? This is where David is close, but he isn't close enough. Go back up to verse 33. We've read it several times. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. And here it is. What I have died instead of you. That's the definition of love, isn't it? What is it that Paul said to describe Christ? Christ loved us, not that we had loved him, but that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in revolts, while we were still rounding up the armies, there is Christ suffering under the just judgment of God, for he is love. It is here at the cross 
not in some forest somewhere in ancient Israel, but is at the cross where we meet justice and love. And his name is Jesus Christ. And only by his grace can we be saved, can we be sanctified, can we be transformed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be